Support comes from Pacific Science Center, working to inspire the next generation of scientists and increase access to STEM education statewide through digital discovery workshops, science on wheels, and summer camps. More ways to support these efforts at PACSci.org. Seattle, you have had quite a year. A contentious new drug law, a big city council election, and of course, more heartbreak for Mariners fans. We have been through a lot together. If you value having Seattle Now there each weekday morning, consider making a donation to support the show as we round out the year. Our fundraising drive is happening for just a couple of days. And hey there to our newest donor, Hal. You can be like Hal. Just follow the link in the show notes. Together, we'll start the year strong. And you can get yourself a special Seattle Now mug while you're at it. Thanks so much for your support. Hey, good morning. It's Patricia Murphy. It's Friday. This is Seattle Now. This week, Cinerama is back under a new name that nobody can seem to remember. Boeing is calling all its commercial airline employees back into the office for five days a week. And the Seattle City Council turned their attention to our city's sidewalks, or maybe the lack of sidewalks. Ticket editor Chase Burns and South Seattle Emerald founder Marcus Harrison Green are here to break down the week. But first, let's get you caught up. An initiative that would amend the state's police pursuit law has enough signatures to qualify for the 2024 ballot. Initiative 2113 would restore police authority to engage in a pursuit if the person has violated the law. It's been two years since the state passed legislation to limit when police can pursue suspects. The measure was already amended this year to lower the threshold for pursuit. Let's Go Washington said yesterday more than 400,000 state residents signed on. King 5 reports that the PAC is sponsored by Brian Haywood, a wealthy Republican donor. A Tacoma jury began deliberating the fate of three police officers charged in the 2020 death of Manny Ellis. Pierce County's medical examiner ruled his death a homicide. Lawyers for the officers claim Ellis resisted arrest and that his death was the result of methamphetamine use. Prosecutors for the state allege the officer's use of force killed Ellis. It's the first test of a statewide police accountability law passed by voters in 2018 that made it easier to prosecute officers over the use of deadly force. And online retailer Zulily, which announced earlier this month that it was closing up shop, is laying off employees much earlier than expected. The company told employees they would have jobs until February, but GeekWire reports many received messages this week that their termination had been moved up to that day. The state's Employment Security Department says 292 employees in Washington and more than 800 total will be laid off as Zulily shuts down its online shop. It is Friday again. My goodness, this year is closing out fast. Chase Burns is here. He's an editor at The Ticket. How's it going, Chase? Good to see you again. Two times in one week, Trish. I know. I feel very fancy. Marcus Harrison Green is here as well. He's the founder of the South Seattle Emerald and a columnist at the Seattle Times. Marcus, how you doing? You know, it's a little come see, come spy, as the French say, but uh, I'm here with you, so it's always a great time. Yeah, yeah. Glad to see you, Marcus. The Cinerama is back. You too. Oh, I mean, SIF Cinema downtown. The longtime institution back on Fourth Avenue in Belltown. People are excited. Chase, we were talking about this this week. Floor tickets to yesterday's debut showing have been sold out for a bit. There were some balcony seats. 
to go see the debut showing of Wonka, though. Did either of you manage to snag tickets for any of those showings? I, I have not. It, 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 it had nothing to do with the Cinerama and, and more to do with the fact that Hollywood can't seem to come up with anything original these days. I mean, my God. Oh. <laughs> well, you're starting out strong here. You got your fists up already, this. Marcus. I'm telling you. I mean, goodness. I mean, it, how many prequels, sequels, you know, <laughs> derivatives of other ideas? I want to see them show some art house movie that is probably terrible, but we pretend is good. Chase, I, from our conversation this week, you were not necessarily a fan of Wonka, but you were trusting Sif. Yeah, when I first saw it, I was a little bit like, oh, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but but it's it, that's probably just my predisposition towards this movie. Like, I just, it was not something that was on my list. I probably would not have seen it. Um, but when I saw that it got programmed, I mean, regardless, I had a timer set on my phone for like 12 p.m. when the tickets went live, just because I was like, I want to be there when it goes live. And like, it was sold out like within a minute. I think it's probably because it went it went to sale to to SIF members and SIF members wanted to go because this is a big event. Um, but yeah, I think that it makes sense with the chocolate popcorn tie in. And I was pleasantly surprised that the reviews seem to be like people really like it. It's from the Paddington 2 director and people love Paddington 2. But I'm sure I'm sure it'll be a good time for all. I'm curious, Marcus, if there is a film you're excited to see in the new theater. I think I would go see Dune 2. I mean, though I have, you know, some issues with the messianic sort of complex of that uh, of that film. It, it, it is a spectacular sight to behold. I will say that. I'm a fan of the director. Um, and I will say just in general, I mean, growing up here in Seattle, Cinerama, it was sort of this, this special place to go. Like I remember when the Star Wars, Star Wars prequels came out, you know, sleeping overnight just to, to get a ticket. Did I did I mention that I was dateless in, in, in high school? <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the great thing about the, the theater in, in general is the fact that it is this, you know, sort of this third place, you know, truly in, in, at a time where we don't have many third places to go to. It's also really important to support the things we love, right? It has been a really hard year for art institutions in the city. We've lost venues. The Kraken Bar closed in the U District. Book at Repertory Theater closed. The Museum of Museums closed, which was fantastic. It's harder to be an arts org this year than it has been in the past. Chase, you cover this. What are you hearing? Well, when we talked to uh, cinemas before coming on the podcast this week, a lot of them were saying that they've seen ticket sales really rebound since 2021, not at pre-pandemic levels. So like no one we spoke to was like, wow, this is just like how it was before the pandemic. But you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm come up, um, especially with the smaller indie cinemas. There's been a few things like the Fantasy A Gets a Mattress, which has been really popular around town, which is a local movie that just came out. Um, There's been these like kind of buzzy, smaller indie movies that have a kind of new audience that's coming out post-pandemic, which I couldn't have exactly predicted, but I guess I guess I could have because it makes sense. We spent so much time just in our homes watching TV and there was a lot of conversation around like, oh, everyone's just going to buy a nice TV and just watch movies from there. But I think people are tired of that experience. Not that they don't do that, but you're seeing that people want to go out and see movies. SIF Cinema Downtown also, Marcus, critical for downtown. You know, we had a bit of a scare with Regal Downtown earlier this year. That would have left just AMC, even though there's other theaters. It's kind of nice, I think, to have something beloved that we feel connected to back into the neighborhood. Marcus, you think it will reinvigorate things downtown? I I don't know if it itself can, right? I mean, that's that's a tall order, but I do think 
it is, you know, sparking a level of excitement and nostalgia, particularly, you know, in a city where there is so much newness. And so, at, you know, there's so much that is vanishing to like be able to hold on to something, you know, that people have nostalgia over, whether it's from, you know, childhood or first dates or so forth. I think those things are always good. And uh, mm -hmm. I am a huge fan of, I will continue to call it the Cinerama um, for life. <laughs> Always. Cinerama forever. Our friends at Soundside had a conversation back when the Cinerama was put up for sale about the fact that just a few pretty big arts donors control the art scene in the city. Paul Allen, whose company Vulcan previously owned Cinerama, were the ones to almost close it down, right? The Medici were responsible for most of the Roman art, you know, the mm -hmm. Italian Renaissance of art. Are people like Paul Allen and the major donors in this city responsible for too much? You got me on my soapbox, uh, Tracy. <laughs> there, do need, there needs to be some level of, of public ownership or public control, I believe, uh, you know, in the art space. I, I don't want Seattle to become what San Francisco has become, which is very, you know, used to be this very vibrant, eccentric place that is now fairly utilitarian because most of its artists can't afford to live there anymore. Um, I want Seattle to, to keep, you know, being its sort of, you know, sort of strange, weirdo, cool, cool-ish self. Well, it's interesting because when you talk to a lot of arts organizations, especially coming out of the pandemic, they were talking about how, you know, there aren't as many I guess, techie benefactors as there used to be. There's like a generational divide, whereas there was this whole generation of people who made a lot of money off of like Microsoft and then became big arts donors in town. And a lot of arts organizations are not seeing younger, uh, younger, richer tech workers donating in the same way to the art scenes locally. So, um, you know, like it or not, a lot of those bigger donors have funded the arts in Seattle. Um, and without people coming behind them to replace them, um, we're, that's also creating a, va a vacancy. Um, like the Seattle Art Museum just received a huge gift of Alexander Calder art, um, which was also from uh, a former Microsoft worker. And so it's just like we I don't know why. Why are the new techies not donating to the arts? So that's that's a question, too. Not to mention that really smaller artists rely on that smaller grant funding made possible by bigger arts funding. You know, I mean, it, it goes right down to the smallest, nascent, nascent artist who's trying to just create. Yes. And, and I will just do an, an appeal to McKinsey and uh, Melinda French Gates and, and just say, as, as somebody who is a starving artist himself, please fund the arts, McKinsey and Melinda, please. Yeah, and and I love the I love plugging that like you don't have to have a lot of money to be an art collector either. Like there are so many smaller art markets in the city that are selling things at like all price points, and so like you can go out and support artists um, really with whatever budget you have. Um, like you don't need to be a Microsoft uh, X founder to be able to buy art. So true, and so many galleries will work with you, right? If you see a piece of art you love and you want to own it. There's a way to make that happen, and we shouldn't take it for granted that we have good arts and great artists in this city. All right, you two, we are moving on to another longtime Washington institution. Boeing is calling employees back to the office five whole days a week. That's a straight 40, if you're asking. Seattle Times described Boeing Commercial Airlines boss Stan Deal as eager to leave the COVID-19 pandemic behind 
Right now, the Times says there's no exact deadline that's been set, but managers have been working with their teams to implement a policy for a while now. One team apparently has been informed they'll be back to 40 hours a week in person as soon as the holidays are over. That's a lot of people. That division that they're talking about, the commercial airplane division, is 35,000 employees. That's a pretty sizable recall. If I give my opinion for just a moment here, all these tech recalls back to the office have felt like kind of like, oh, come on, techies, come on back to the office. And all the techies are like, no, 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 we're not, we don't do that. We don't go back to the office. The Boeing feels like dad is calling people back now. Now dad says it's time to come back because Boeing is a different company than like Amazon. And, you know, it has a different feel. It's an older company. It's more established, has a lot more government contracts. So I wonder if this is a louder message than some of the other callbacks. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think an employer of this size, if they're able to do it, uh, whatever successfully means, but if they're able to do it successfully and they don't have a bunch of people quit, I can see a lot of other companies copying this. Um, But I also think that work has changed. And I think that uh, a lot of younger companies are more interested in a hybrid work environment. I think there's a lot of benefits to hybrid work. The techies don't really do themselves many favors when they get interviewed for stories like this. Like in the Seattle Times story, there, he was just sort of saying like, oh, it's the employee was saying like, oh, it's so nice to be able to be home and like have this like relaxing day at home. And I was like, no, you should, you should lead with like working from home can often be more productive. Like a lot of us know that the office is not always a productive space. And like this isn't about being relaxed at home, I think. I think it's that in in many cases, working from home works better than working in an office. So we should be more um, open-minded about how how offices are are laid out. It certainly could be a way to weed out employees, right? A lot of them moved away during the pandemic. A lot of them moved to places that were more affordable, better for their lifestyle, because they were able to work remotely. To have that suddenly change is significant. I mean, to your point, right? I mean, they, we, we had sort of that quiet quitting phenomenon for a while. I mean, this is sort of the quiet firing, you know, potentially, where it's, uh, you know, a very passive aggressive way to do it, which is very on brand for Seattle, I'll say. It's a big shift in power, right? The, I think the the pandemic really opened up something that companies weren't totally prepared for in their workforce, right? We got a taste. We got a taste of what it's like to have a little more autonomy in our work lives. And for a lot of people, it worked a lot more efficiently than being in the office. I can say personally, now that we are back hybrid in real ways, I see the advantages to coming into the office, but I also value the autonomy of not having to be here every single day. Well, we all know like People don't work in the office like I like like the idea that we were going to the office 40 hours a week and the majority of those hours were being used just working really hard is silly. And so I think we're also just having larger conversations around like how many hours of the workday are you like working really hard, you know, and how much of that workday is allowed to be more like, I don't know, like communicating with your colleagues. And we're just figuring out a lot of stuff going back. And I can see why a company like Boeing is doubling down. But it's not like this is going to signal oh my gosh, we're all going back to work 40 hours a week. I just think that the the horse is out of the stable or cat's out of the bag. It's, it's not coming back. <laughs> one Boeing employee posted on Reddit this week. Maybe I'll revise that. One former Boeing employee maybe posted on Reddit this week. I'll come in five days a week when Dave Calhoun does, referring mm-hmm. to the Boeing CEO, who said he loves remote work. 
Remote work was here to stay. Not so much. Changed their mind. What would you do? Chase, if somebody said to you, you're back in the office five days a week. I mean, I wouldn't quit immediately unless I had a a better job lined up. I mean, just realistically, it's great to say like, oh, yeah, I would find another job. But that's not a super realistic thing to say. What I would go is probably I would go in and then I would try to show the managers how much uh, working wasn't happening in the office because I just (laughs) I don't think that that is a realistic solution. And I also work as an editor and I work on a computer. So it's just like when I go into an office, people are distracting me all the time. So I would just be like, it's not as productive. Marcus, would you do it? I would so not. No, I mean, I think I would do the whole thing of <laughs> asking for forgiveness rather than permission. And, and like, you know, I'm a bit of a rebel. So I would always, yeah, sure. Five days a week. Yeah. yeah. Try to enforce that. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Would you rather have the, the hybrid option or would you rather have a, a four day work week where you had to come in person for all four days? Oh, I would pick four day work week immediately. I would be like, I will come in every single day if that means I get three days off. I love the idea of a four day work week. You can bring me back to the office that way. Same, same. I would. I think we just solved something here because I totally agree with you. I may be more down to come in four days a week and have a fifth day off. All right. Well, let's take a stroll down Seattle's many sidewalks. The Seattle City Council unanimously passed a law Tuesday. Uh, a requirement that sidewalk construction and repair be more fully woven into the city's paving projects. Seattle Times calls it a billion-dollar problem in a city where 11,000 blocks have no sidewalks and where 46% apparently need repairs. I can attest to this up in the North End. Right away, this is a huge issue for pedestrians, you too. People who can't drive, people who are differently abled, how have we gone this long having 11,000 blocks with no sidewalk? I have I have no idea. I mean, when I, 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 it, we're not. We're baffled. In a, in a city that likes to call itself world class, we have 11,000 blocks with no sidewalks. I guess I've always had the theory that, you know, sidewalks are sort of the, the solid C student. You know, when it comes to like <laughs> policy priorities, right? It's like they're not the the high achieving, you know, you know, folks where you do the you got the AP classes and all these other programs. Well, and they're not like the students who are like you know the F minuses, where it's like they obviously need some help. They're the salad C, where it's like oh, we can kind of leave them alone, deprioritize them. And then you know, you come home one day, they're in some debaucherous rager in the home, and they're like, oh my God, we, how do we not see the signs? How do we not see the signs? <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. Sidewalks aren't sexy. I think that's part of it, right? Mm. We got to make sidewalks sexy. I like, I like this. I like this. I like where you're going. I mean, and I can say most of these sidewalkless roads are probably up in my end uh, of Seattle, which is the north end. It is positively dangerous up there. There are no sidewalks on the side streets. It's bananas. And the ones that we have on my side street are so uneven from tree roots. How are the sidewalks in your neighborhood, Marcus? You're down in South Seattle. I am. I live in Upper Rainier Beach, and uh, they're, it, it, they're actually pretty decent, I have to say. But uh, my, my girlfriend lives in the Central District, and so whenever I'm walking her dog, though, and it's, you know, after some heavy rains, it's like we're paddled through a marsh or something on the on the sidewalk in terms of the uh, the cracks and so forth. So it's, uh, it could definitely stand for some improvement there. 
Well, and I I live downtown, so there are there are sidewalks in downtown. But I've lived in other parts of the city where there aren't, and it just creates this like negative feedback loop where like if you live in a place that doesn't have good sidewalks, you likely have a car, um, and it's just like why why would I walk to the bus? There's not even a sidewalk, and so it's hard to create different patterns when you don't even have sidewalks that can reach where you live, and so you're not going to have this kind of 15 minute city that we're dreaming of because you can't even <laughs> walk down the street safely. And up in the north end, you know, where we don't have sidewalks and you're walking on the road, the road is curved. It's uneven. So one leg is always dropping a little further than the other if you're actually walking on the side of the road. Like, it's one of the reasons I can't run in the north end because it's just really uncomfortable. I get, like, stress injuries on one side of my body. It's dumb. Sidewalks are really important. Our friend David Croman at The Times notes that Seattle expanded through annexation, which is part of the problem with sidewalks. He says the city is currently installing 27 new blocks of sidewalk per year. This is great math that he did here. It would take 400 years to get a sidewalk on every block of the city that way. <laughs> wow. Do you, do you think we'll get a uh, light rail in Ballard before or after that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are going to leave it there. Chase Burns is an editor at The Ticket, and Marcus Harrison Green is the founder of the South Seattle Emerald and a columnist at The Seattle Times. Really appreciate you two. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle Now. We can only make this show with your help. You can support us by donating at the link in the show notes. Today's episode was produced by Vaughn Jones. Our stellar production team also includes Caroline Chamberlain Gomez, Claire McGrain, and Jenny Cecil Moore. Matt Jorgensen does our theme music. Seattle Now and KUOW Public Radio are members of the NPR Network. It's an independent coalition of public media podcasters. You can find more shows in the network wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Patricia Murphy. See you Monday. Seattle in the 90s. A tidal wave of iconic music roars out of this sleepy city and launches a pop culture revolution. Here's a story you haven't heard. Let the Kids Dance is a new podcast about the rise and fall of Seattle's teen dance ordinance, the law that made it illegal for young people to go to concerts. A story of moral panic, grassroots activism, and an unstoppable music community that fought for its freedom. Listen to Let the Kids Dance from KUOW and the NPR Network.